Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. So I was very worried when we withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership that we had drawn the Vietnamese out onto a limb and then cut off the limb, convinced them to join this high standard trade agreement, and then we pulled out of it. And I was very worried that that was going to result in a long-term, terrible setback, and we were going to lose the progress that we had made. We actually didn't. Again, the Vietnamese were very pragmatic. Even the prime minister who had negotiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership with me or negotiated Vietnam's place in it said, okay, so that didn't work out. Let's focus on what will work. When the Dutch colonialists left Indonesia, there were about 200 people with advanced degrees in the entire country, the entire archipelago. So what's the historic memory? It's that foreigners come, they exploit, they extract, and they go away and they don't leave anything. Companies that do that will not succeed in Indonesia. The companies that help build capacity, that invest in that country's youth, they do well. So now there are all these unicorns and decacorns in Indonesia, and the companies that are partnering with local companies and building capacity locally are going gangbusters. I'm Rexin Yu, Managing Partner at The Asia Group. And I'm Sherian Anchor for Bloomberg Television's Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. Today, we are pleased to welcome Ambassador Ted Osius to the podcast. Ted is president and CEO of the U.S. ASEAN Business Council. And for our listeners, ASEAN stands for the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And he also most recently served as U.S. Ambassador to Vietnam from 2014 to 2017. A longtime U.S. diplomat, Ambassador Osius served in Bangkok, Ho Chi Minh City, New Delhi, Jakarta, Manila and the United Nations in his nearly 30 years in the U.S. Foreign Service. In October 2021, Ted published his memoir, Nothing is Impossible, America's Reconciliation with Vietnam. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. Rexon, Sherry, it's really great to be with you. I love to talk about Vietnam, so thank you for giving me that opportunity. Great. Well, maybe we'll start there. Ted, you know, since coming into office, the Biden administration has increasingly over the last 13 months placed attention on Southeast Asia and specifically Vietnam. And, you know, many observers of Southeast Asia, you know well, are excited about the trajectory of U.S. Vietnam relationship. You know, some even talk about the possibility of achieving, quote, a strategic partnership. Give us your sense today of the U.S.-Vietnam relationship and your outlook and how optimistic are you for what might be in the art of the possible between Washington, D.C. and Hanoi? Well, I'm bullish. I'm very optimistic about the relationship. It's at its highest point ever. If it becomes a strategic partnership, that's great. And that's the formal parlance that the Vietnamese use for their highest level partnerships. But actually, I would argue it has been for six or seven years already. It is a fleshed out partnership with joint activity across a wide variety of areas, including security. We have a strong security relationship, a strong economic relationship, 
strong people-to-people ties, educational exchanges. We do work together on the environment and on public health. It's a dynamic partnership, uh, no matter what the title is given to it. It's remarkable to think about where we are today between the United States and Vietnam, considering our legacy and the war that was fought decades ago. What hangover or what residual impact, Ted, does the war, the Vietnam War, have on the relationship today? Vietnamese are remarkably pragmatic and forward-looking. And so one of the reasons that the partnership has moved as fast as it has is that Vietnam sees it in its interest to have a better relationship with the United States. And Vietnam has systematically built that relationship with the United States. And the United States has, in a way, returned the embrace. There are hangovers. I I can't say that everything about the war has been wrapped up neatly and put away. The process of reconciliation is a long one. We know from our own civil war, it takes a while to get over a war. It takes a while for all of the ghosts to be buried. So I wouldn't say that the process of reconciliation is complete. I I wrote a book about that reconciliation because I think it is so fascinating. But it has come a really long way in a really short time. The last 30 years have been very, very fruitful for U.S.-Vietnam relations. How much of the interest from both sides rests on the fact that they're both pushing back on China's influence? And does it also risk the relationship being viewed mainly from that aspect? The Vietnamese have a long history with China. They have fought, I think, 22 wars against China. They fought for their independence. The Vietnamese are always thinking about China. We're obviously very concerned about the direction that China's taking. But I think when people look at the relationship only through that lens, they're missing something. It's strategically important for both of us to engage in this relationship. It's important for Vietnam's future for it to have options in its relations around the world. Uh, The Vietnamese don't want to be dominated by any power, not by us, not by the Chinese, not by anyone. They want to chart their own course. If you look at it from the Vietnamese perspective, The partnership with us, just as partnerships with ASEAN and with European nations and friendships with Japan and Korea are very important because Vietnam wants a diverse, dynamic set of relationships, and it doesn't want anybody to be telling it what to do. Ted, I want to ask you a question going back to your experience as ambassador in Vietnam. And my question is, you know, the United States and Vietnam have wildly different political and governance systems, a communist government with the party playing a substantial role in the direction, in fundamental decisions. Talk to us a little bit about your experience as ambassador from the United States to a country with that kind of political system. How did the advice you give to your successors, and as we think about how we move forward, what was that like? And how do we navigate this difference? So my predecessor, David Scheer, who was the fifth U.S. ambassador to Vietnam, said, Ted, focus on the party. Learn about what the party is thinking, what decisions are being made in the party. You can't affect change if you don't engage with the party. I followed his advice, and I've urged my successors 
to do the same thing. One of the most significant thing I did as ambassador was I, I facilitated a visit by the party general secretary, Nguyen Phu Chong, to the White House. And in that meeting, at my urging, the president of the United States said, we can respect different political systems. In other words, we, our systems are very different, but we're not going to try to overthrow your system. We tried that in the 60s and 70s. We're not, we're not going that route again. And that was a very significant moment because what it said to the Vietnamese is, yes, we're going to have differences, human rights, religious freedom, sharing information, the role of the media, the big differences that we're not going to paper over but we will resolve them together. We'll work on these issues together. We're not going to be trying to use the methods of the past to forcibly change the way that country governs itself. And that allowed our relationship, I would say, to really flourish. Uh, since that moment in 2015, our relationship has grown by leaps and bounds. I actually think it gives us more opportunity to influence choices that the Vietnamese make. And I think what we've seen over the years is, is a greater openness, more back and forth, more exchange on the web, a freer flow of information, more religious freedom than existed in the past, still plenty of problems. Because the other thing that President Obama said to the general secretary that I thought was significant when talking about human rights is, this is just who we are. We care about human rights. We care about self-determination. We care that people play a role in deciding their future. And that's just who we are. So that's always going to be part of our dialogue. You can't wish it away. But he said it in a way that, was, that respected the fact that there are differences. And I think that's always more effective. You have said in the past that the Trump administration's policies represented a setback when it comes to U.S.-Vietnam relations. How much has been recovered since? So I was very worried when we withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership that we had drawn the Vietnamese out onto a limb and then cut off the limb. We convinced them to join this high-standard trade agreement, and then we pulled out of it. And I was very worried that that was going to result in a long-term, terrible setback, and we were going to lose the progress that we had made. We actually didn't. Again, the Vietnamese were very pragmatic. Even the prime minister who had negotiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership with me or negotiated Vietnam's place in it said, okay, so that didn't work out. Let's focus on what will work. And he talked about, well, how can we deal with this new administration? How can we keep deepening the economic ties? How can we keep strengthening the partnership? And his successors did the same thing. We kept moving forward on security ties. We kept moving forward in the realm of public health and in addressing environmental challenges, even during the Trump administration. And we kept strengthening our private sector ties. So I don't think we have some enormous gap to fill in. Actually, I think we still have a lot of momentum. We never really lost the momentum in the relationship. Maybe we would have gone even faster if we'd stayed in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But I think the relationship with Vietnam continues to do well. And we have opportunities with the Biden administration to keep deepening ties in that area in particular, deepening our trade and economic ties with Vietnam. 
Ted, I want to maybe broaden our focus here. In your current capacity, you lead the U.S. ASEAN Business Council. And, you know, ASEAN's a, an institution comprised of the 10 countries in Southeast Asia with different roles for other powers like the United States and Australia and others. But if we pull back to ASEAN, and with an eye towards the indications that President Biden plans a leader-level summit with nearly all the ASEAN leaders, maybe start with your basic judgment on where are we today with ASEAN under the Biden administration? What are the, at a macro level, the top issues that, you know, if you're in the White House or at the State Department sort of trying to shepherd this larger relationship for the United States with these countries, what are the top one, two priorities? Well, let's, let's start with the facts. Uh, ASEAN matters to the United States and the United States matters to ASEAN. The collective economy of ASEAN is, is over 3.2 trillion GDP. It's now the fifth largest economy in the world, but based on current growth rates, it'll be the fourth largest economy in the world by 2030. It's the third largest population in the world, more than 662 million people. So it matters. And the Biden administration has recognized that. And the Biden administration has done what you need to do, starting with showing up. We've had visits from Secretary of Defense to Vietnam and Singapore, a visit by the vice president to the region, visits by Secretary Raimondo, Secretary Blinken has been all over the region, including, I would note, he was traveling while the Ukraine crisis was unfolding and he stuck with it. He went to Fiji and he showed that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can, we can build a relationship with the Indo-Pacific even while we're dealing with a crisis in Europe. And I thought that was uh, very significant. I think the Special Leaders Summit is a phenomenal opportunity to show that we understand how much ASEAN matters. And very excited about the fact that we're gonna do this. You said, what would, should be the priorities? I think we need to do what we're doing in the security realm. It's already underway with the Quad and with AUKUS. The Quad goes beyond security, but these are decisions that have been made to strengthen our role and our, particularly our leadership in the Indo-Pacific including in the security realm. And I think we need to do as much as we possibly can to deepen our trade and economic ties. In Asia, as in other parts of the world, trade is strategy. And I think we need to, the administration, I hope, will use what it has begun setting up, which is this Indo-Pacific economic framework, to really deepen ties and show that we're back at the table when it comes to writing the rules of trade. So I think that's critical, and that's a key portion of the Indo-Pacific strategy. There, the action plan for the Indo-Pacific strategy has 10 streams of work. They're all appropriate. They're all really important. They're concrete, uh, necessary streams of work. I'm particularly focused in my current role on the economic stream, and I think it's very critical that even though this is hard, there are political constraints that the administration used, whatever political capital it can to lean in in this area 
and make sure that that is substantive, deep, meaningful, and that countries are asked to meet high standards and adopt binding commitments. How important an aspect will digital trade be there, and what would you like to see in that economic framework? It's very important. Southeast Asia is the fastest growing region in the world for digital economy. We've looked with others at what trends have been during COVID and what is happening as countries and companies emerge from COVID. And what we're seeing is that people went online during the pandemic and they're staying online. They're using digital tools to grow their small, medium-sized enterprises, to stay in touch, to educate their kids. The digital economy is really important to Southeast Asia. And I would argue it's really important for the United States to be involved in writing the rules of the digital economy. Right now, you've got CPTPP, which we are not part of, has a, a high standard digital component, a digital chapter. And you have RCEP, which doesn't have a high standard digital component. That is a big trading block that doesn't include the United States. And then you have digital trade agreements that are underway that have been led by Singapore. There are chapters in the U.S.-Japan free trade agreement and the U.S.-Mexico-Canada free trade agreement that show that it's possible to have high standard agreements when it comes to digital trade. We need these for all of the Indo-Pacific. We might start with just a few key countries that can meet really high standards, but we want to see those high standards grow. We want to see the free flow of data, trusted data flows. That The Japanese coined the term free flow of data with trust. But what won't be good for us and won't be good for ASEAN is this trend towards data localization, data sovereignty. Now, that's championed by others. There are others who say, well, the digital space is is sovereign. Only the information that we want to go in and out is going to go in and out. I don't think that's the way to go. I think that the way to go is, and I think the U.S. has the ability to champion this better than anybody else, is to make sure there are free flows of data with trust. And that means we got to be at the table. we got to be arguing, negotiating. Ted, implicit in what you're saying, and I'll just be blunt about it, is over the last few years, we haven't been at the table. As That's you right. pointed out, right? I mean, the two, what you just listed is a sort of, in some ways, a confusing patchwork of different agreements and arrangements, right? The two most important of which, the Comprehensive Trans-Pacific Trading Pact and then the RCEP, the United States is not part of either of them. China is part of RCEP and they have applied to become a member of the CPTPP. And I think bluntly put, we as the United States face a challenge in kind of regaining some of the position we have given away in some ways in the economic realm. And that a lot of people have a hope that with the Indo-Pacific economic framework, there's a start there. You know, you and your current job sit at this fascinating crossroads of well over 100, I think, you know, American companies as your member. 175. 175, almost 200, right? You Sue crossed 200. That's right. And then all of these countries, right, that are faced with, you know, choices and where they put priority. Where are you in the mix of optimism and worry, right, over what the future holds in the economic, technology, commercial realm? Well, there are plenty of shoals ahead. 
there are plenty of challenges ahead, but I'm still in the optimistic camp. I mean, I believe that there's a lot the United States can do. And we have willing partners in Southeast Asia to accomplish a great deal. We have partners in Southeast Asia who really don't want others to be writing the rules, who think that they can participate in writing the rules as long as they're working with us, because that's how we've behaved in the past. So I want us to take advantage of that goodwill. We're the, we're the number one investor in ASEAN. We have built a deep well of goodwill in that region. There's intense interest in continuing to deepen relations, especially private sector relations with the United States in that region. And we have signaled in, I think, every way, we're coming back to the table. And so now we have to do it. We have to come to return to the table. We have to lean in on the Indo-Pacific economic framework. We have to be ambitious. And I think it starts with technology. It starts with writing the rules of the internet economy. I think that's probably the part of the framework that will get the most focus, and I think correctly so. We also have to be working on secure supply chains. We have to be to be working on sustainable economic practices. I think it's very important that the administration it has signaled the importance of sustainability, of clean energy, and I think that's welcome in the region. You see Thailand leading APEC this year, and Thailand's talking all about sustainability and the importance of, of a green economy. You see the G20 being led by Indonesia this year. Top of the agenda is sustainability and green economy, as well as continuing to develop the digital economy. And you see interest in the health and life sciences coming from Indonesia and from Thailand. So our messages are getting through. What is the calculation here in the U.S. that after withdrawing from the TPP, they're not really looking into the CPTPP or the RCEP or, and this multilateral sort of framework seems to still be lagging uh, vis-a-vis, say, uh, bilateral free trade agreements. You mentioned the one that's been negotiated with Japan. We have Korea, Singapore, Australia as well. Is there a feeling that bilaterals work as well as multilateral frameworks? And can America achieve the sort of leadership that it wants in the region by just these two-way deals? I think if you ask industry, industry wants consistent rules across the board. Industry would prefer something like CPTPP, where it's consistent rules across the region. That's the gold standard. And, you know, frankly, I wish we could go back to TPP. I thought I spent two and a half years of my life on it. I thought it was the right strategic move as well as the right economic move for the United States. I wish we could go back. I don't think the political situation allows us to go back, at least not anytime soon. So I think what the administration is doing is acknowledging the reality. There are certain things that can be done in this political climate, and there are certain things that can't be done. And I think the administration has decided, well, we're going to be relatively creative and we're going to go after key issues with key partners. And then we're going to bring more others in over time. I think that's OK. It's not perfect, but let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Let's see how many countries can be part of high standard trade arrangements and then see if we can't build the capacity of developing countries 
to also join those trading arrangements. And the administration is focused on the rights of workers and on sustainable economies and the environment. And I think that actually is also welcome in the region, even though some countries won't be able to accede to those, those high standards right away. What I understand on the negotiations thus far is countries won't be able to just kind of pick and choose. Well, we'll engage with you on the digital economy, but we're not going to engage with you on the environment and workers' rights. That won't wash. And I think that's okay, too. I think the fact that the idea is to maintain high standards and then move in the direction of those high standards is laudable. So you mentioned how businesses would prefer to see more consistent regulations around the region, right? Tell us a little bit then about you know, the role of the private sector, especially when it comes to uh, perhaps pursuing U.S. interests and at the same time, some of the positive impact that you can actually make in the region. Well, this was kind of a great surprise to me coming from government. I spent 30 years in government and then went to the private sector. I worked for Google before this job. And what was stunning to me was to see how much the private sector can accomplish because of the resources that the private sector has. So that's been, you know, that was kind of a light bulb going off for me. You can do an enormous amount outside of government that makes societies better, that strengthens democracy, that pulls people up and makes them more prosperous than they were. That activity is tremendously important. And that's why it's actually quite exciting to be in this space with the, you know, working on behalf of 175 companies that earn $7 trillion in revenue each year. So what I think is the private sector, just by acting, by engaging in the region, is making a huge difference. I think the fact that governments, including the United States government, consult with us as they do their policymaking is positive, is productive. We're not the only stakeholders. Industry isn't the only stakeholder when it comes to rulemaking, but industry is a really important one. And so I think what we've found because we speak collectively for companies is that we're able to move the needle in ASEAN on policies that actually help countries achieve the aspirations that they want to achieve. I think we're able to do that in the United States too. In ASEAN, what we always hear is that countries have the aspiration to move up the value chain not to be just producing raw materials that enrich others, but to be able to use the talents of their people to innovate and to succeed in the global economy and the innovation economy. And to do that, they need policies that encourage innovation. We can help governments figure out what those policies are that are going to deter innovation and what will encourage and spur innovation. And, you know, it's really good to be in a spot where we can do that because I think it benefits people at all levels throughout the region and here at home. So, Ted, I want to ask you just to unpack ASEAN for a minute here and maybe approach it this way. You look at sort of three major maritime countries, ones that are spread out over large territory, you know, Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia. Would you agree that the sort of geographic makeup of these countries and some of the second, third order implications of that, how much of that impacts the way your members, as they consider and evaluate where to invest, where to go, 
does that create a unique set of challenges? And, and if so, like, how have you started to sort of grapple with those as you've settled into your job and the role of the council? I think a lot of people say Vietnam, you know, huge opportunity there, right? In terms of growth in private sector presence. And obviously there's a phenomenal amount in the city state in Singapore. But if you look at Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, you know, they underperform in some ways in terms of U.S. investment. And I'm trying to sort of unpack that question. That's a really interesting question. I would actually add Vietnam to the list of maritime countries. That's a really long yeah. coastline. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Only Indonesia has 17,000 islands. Only the Philippines has 9, 10, 12,000 islands. These are primarily maritime nations. You're right. And what I think that means is that connectivity is more complicated. In a maritime nation, you have to work really hard to maintain unity. In a nation like Indonesia, spread over four time zones and with all of these different linguistic and ethnic and religious groups, you got to work really hard to hold it all together. You've got to add some centrifugal forces. And Indonesia does that. I mean, that's a big part of the history of the last hundred years in Indonesia is big decisions that have been made to keep that country united. The equivalent of e pluribus unum is their motto, and it's because it's hard and they have to take extra effort to do it. What that sometimes means is that there's an inward focus in Indonesia. There's a certain kind of knee jerk nationalism in Indonesia. But especially the current leadership of Indonesia, while as nationalistic as any Indonesian government, is also looking for opportunities to move up that value chain. The Indonesians are coming here and saying, hey, we can be the world's production center for electronic vehicles and the batteries that drive them. You know, we've got the materials, we've got the people, we have enormous opportunities, and they're open to talking about what policies might get in the way of those aspirations. And as a result, even in Indonesia, which has long suffered from high unemployment, there are labor shortages, even in some of the poorer parts of Indonesia, because there's Indonesia is becoming this major production center. Malaysia's politics are very complicated right now, but Malaysia certainly has been taking advantage of the digital economy and for a long time has been putting up policies that allow that country to take advantage of the digital economy. And the Philippines has been too. And so you see major internet companies investing a lot in the Philippines. And you see the Philippines adopting some pretty forward-looking policies when it comes to the internet economy. But I think it's that connectivity piece that makes it kind of hard for maritime nations. And, you know, you got you to hold everybody together. And so that sometimes bumps against the need to stay wide open and to welcome all comers. I think historic the historic context of these decisions are really important to understand. And just one more anecdote about Indonesia. When the Dutch colonialists left Indonesia, there were about 200 people with advanced degrees in the entire country, the entire archipelago. So what's the historic memory? It's that foreigners come, they exploit, they extract, and they go away and they don't leave anything. Companies that do that will not succeed in Indonesia. The companies that help build capacity, that invest in that country's youth, they do well. 
So now there are all these unicorns and decacorns in Indonesia and the companies that are partnering with local companies and building capacity locally are going gangbusters. They're doing really well in Indonesia. So I would just argue that's the way to go. Look at the context and then invest appropriately. Don't think you can just go and extract and walk away. It's not going to work. Well, Ted, I can think of a few people who have the wealth of insight and expertise on Asia writ large, but certainly in this part of the world. And grateful for you to spend a little time with us to illuminate some just terrific insights. I think we're all looking forward to seeing this leader level meeting and then what comes beyond that, because I share your bullishness on U.S. Vietnam and then overall for the United States in this part of the world. And we look forward down the road to welcoming you back to Tea Leaves Podcast. Thank you again. Thank you. If you'd give me one second, yeah. uh, just to put in a plug for the book, it's Nothing is Impossible, America's Reconciliation with Vietnam. And it is not a policy wonk book. It is a book <laughs> of stories about people. Reconciliation is about people. And I had the great good fortune to meet a lot of heroes and to be able to tell their stories because people took a lot of risks and were very brave to bring the United States and Vietnam together. Highly commended. I've read it. Thank you. And as Sherry mentioned, it is a terrific read. Oh, great. Well, you're very kind. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us. And also thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate and follow us on the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You also can access the full video of our conversation on the Asia Group's YouTube page. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.